Everybody owns English now. If you have taken the trouble to learn it, and if you are in a country where it has a significant presence, then you have rights in it. English is a truly global language. Over the many years, different variations have cropped up all around the world. Even within the UK, despite its small size, there is a vast array of different accents and dialects. And no matter where you go, people are very protective of their way of speaking English. We love the little words and phrases that set us apart. But what fuels this diversity? And will the now global status of English affect the way it changes and develops in the future? Welcome to the Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. In this podcast, we explore the ins and outs of what makes us uniquely human, language. This first season is all about the evolution of English. Now, today's guest is a bit of a legend in the field of language and is perfectly poised to give us a glimpse into the current status of English and how it'll be reshaped in the future. David Crystal is a writer, editor, lecturer, and broadcaster who has written over a hundred books on the English language. He is the patron of a number of English language associations, has received an OBE for services to the English language, and he is also an honorary professor at Bangor University. Interestingly, he and I both have a lot in common in terms of our origins. We both grew up in areas where we had many diverse regional accents and dialects spoken, particularly the Scouse of Liverpool and also the Welsh influence from our childhoods. So, how did all these variations of English help shape David's interest in language? Oh, they were there right from the very beginning, undoubtedly. You see, I grew up in Hollyhead, which people don't know it, it's right in the north west corner of Wales. It's the ferry port for Dublin. And uh, I grew up in a monolingual household, but out on the streets, there were these strange languages. There was Welsh, of course, but there was also Gaelic. Irish Gaelic was spoken in the town. Very large number of Irish Catholics came in when they were building the railway from um, Liverpool and so on, from England to Holyhead. And so my mum told me that when I was about three, I came into the house and said, why can't I understand those people out there? And she said, well, it's because they're speaking Welsh, you see, darling. And so I said, why can't I speak Welsh? Apparently, this is, this is all what I was told, because I don't remember it. And she said, well, because I don't speak Welsh. So I said, but I want to speak Welsh. I want to understand what they're saying. So she said, go and ask Uncle Joe. Well, Uncle Joe lived down the road in, and he was a Welsh speaker. So I went to ask Uncle Joe and he started to teach me. And I found this absolutely fascinating. And then when I went to primary school in Hollyhead, of course, it was being taught around the room. You know, all the, the window and the door and things like that had an English name and a Welsh name. So I gradually learned that there was this uh, amazing language. And that was the first one. And then the second one was when I was brought up Catholic and I went to the local Catholic church and began to be an altar server and then had to learn Latin. I began to realize that there were all these languages in the world, in other words. And then at age 10, as you mentioned, I went to live in Liverpool. And that was a big change because as soon as I got there and joined, you know, this was age 10 into the last year of primary school and all the local Liverpool lads you know, who's this guy? Who's this Taffy? Uh, who's this chap from Wales? You know, you don't you don't speak like that here. You know, you you speak like us, uh, and so I had to change my accent within weeks, within days, actually. Otherwise, I'd I, 
I would not have been welcome. <laughs> All of these factors came together to produce a very genuine interest in languages, accents, and dialects. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, that really resonates with me as well. The, 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 sort of the, the varieties in that part of the UK are actually quite inspiring, and it gives you a lot of sounds as well, doesn't it? You know, with um, when you're trying to make them and, and reproduce them later, and you're looking at other languages and dialects around the world. It's extraordinary. The, the dialect and accent diversity in the British Isles is quite remarkable as far as English is concerned. Uh, no other country in the world has anything quite like it for all sorts of historical reasons. You know, when we were, when Ben and I were doing a book some years ago on accents, also when I was doing a television program on the accents of English in Wales, it was quite evident that there was a, a noticeable accent shift on average, every 25 miles as you go around, you know, England and Wales and so on. I say on average because obviously there are areas where there's nobody speaking at all, in the mountains in the middle of Wales, for instance. <laughs> and there are other areas where in a city the accent shift might be quite closer. But 25 miles, I mean, that's amazing, really. There's nothing like that in the United States, in Canada, Australia, and so on. I mean, you've written a lot about, you know, the English language and its origins and all the varieties. Are there any conclusions you've reached you know, from your research over the many, many decades? I think th there are two big forces that drive language always. One is the need for intelligibility. We have to understand each other. And so that fosters the development of a standard language of some sort and a standard accent, too, even though there may be variations in it. But, you know, the international accent of English and the international dialect of English is, for many people, British English or American English. And there aren't too many differences between the two. But the other big force that drives a language is the need to express identity. And that is the fascinating thing. Because identity is the thing that people get very upset about, angry about, go on hunger marches to protect and all this sort of thing. Two forces are there inside everybody and it's a balancing act very often. Most people therefore end up being, as it were, bilingual in their own language or bidialectal to take mm -hmm. the technical term. So I, myself, as you, I guess, have standard English, which we're using to each other now. I, our accents are a bit different, but not dramatically so. But if I go out into the streets here in Holyhead these days, I will switch and talk to some local people. I will switch into a kind of Anglo-Welshy sort of thing with lots of Welsh words introduced into the speech and, and definitely a stronger Welsh accent than the one that's lurking at the background of what I'm doing now. So the dominant accent that you're hearing now, of course, is the accent from L Liverpool and, and around. So the conclusion is that these two forces interact with each other in fascinating ways. The intelligibility force is for the head, as it were. The identity force is for the heart. And it's this balance between the two, or sometimes this conflict between the two, that, that drives the character of English around the, around the world. And it's now no longer, of course, just a matter of local national within Britain accents and dialects, we're now talking internationally, aren't we, with all the global varieties of English that now exist, where exactly the same forces operate there. Wherever you are in the English-speaking world, 
There's the need to be intelligible and learn a standard language, and yet you still want to have your local American, New Zealand, South African, India, Singapore, wherever we are, kind <laughs> of English. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that about the divergence of accents, particularly, you know, you've touched on American English, British English variants. And typically, we would have seen them really sort of get more entrenched, right, in the in the very local variations where an identity would, would start to grow from local communities. And definitely, I completely recognize that. Have you noticed any changes, though, with the advent of newer technology, you know, where we get to hear a lot more from the people who speak different variations of the language around the world? Are we seeing a reunification of the language? Or do you still think that that diversification can live and continue to grow in the same way as before? Oh, I don't see any significant change yet. It's too soon to say, in a way, though, Richard, I mean, the internet and all these other things have only been with us since the 1990s. That's an eye blink in the history of language, really. It takes much longer for significant developments to manifest themselves. There is some evidence of a leveling, uh, as it were, the fact that the internet now makes it perfectly possible at the click of a mouse for me to go and listen to South African English or Singaporean English or whatever it might be does mean that my listening comprehension is now much more sophisticated than it would have been 30 years ago. It hasn't affected my speech at all, though, you see. And that's the point. There's a distinction here between production and comprehension. And this certainly applies to teachers around the world who often ask, as a result of all the things that are taking place in English, does it affect my teaching? And the answer is, well, as far as comprehension goes, both listening and reading, yes, it does. It's important to be aware of all these variations because your students are going to encounter them, if not in the real world, then definitely online. At the same time, if you're used to teaching standard British English and received pronunciation, then carry on doing so. You know, that is a perfectly fine accent and dialect. And that's the one that your materials illustrate. That's the one that the examining boards perhaps will expect and all of that. So I see the internet as offering, as widening the horizons of the language, not just for the people who speak it as a mother tongue, but for anybody learning English. And yet at the same time, the internet also provides these different varieties with an opportunity to manifest themselves. I mean, think, you know, 30 years ago, if I was a speaker of a small dialect of English somewhere in the world, how would I get the rest of the world to, to respect it, to, to know about it, to realize that I love it and all that? Impossible, really. Now it's dead easy. You just do a YouTube or something of that kind. And there suddenly, along with all the other varieties of English around the world, is yours. And so many people are actually doing that now. You know, local dialect societies all over the place, as well as local national varieties in some of the smaller countries around the world. It's all online now. And so mm -hmm. there is, once again, this, this, this balance between the internet allowing us all to talk to each other, although at the moment very largely to write to each other mm -hmm. through typing and things, and yet the opportunity to uh, demonstrate, to illustrate, to have present in the world your own personal uh, variety. 
Let's take a quick break to tell you that this episode of the Language Podcast is brought to you by Chambers, the number one brand for word lovers and publishers of Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life, a new book from David and Ben Crystal. This collection has been mined from the lesser-known corners of Shakespeare's plays and poems to reveal lines that you likely won't have encountered before, but which resonate deeply with modern day-to-day life. You'll also find a treasure trove of trivia, miscellaneous facts, and insightful observations and commentary from David and Ben on every page. Now, coming up, we discuss the ownership of the English language. Can anyone truly lay claim to it anymore? But first, I'd like to know, in this increasingly connected world, do you think there's one version of English that will eventually win the race and that will become the version adopted by all English speakers? Let me know in this episode's comment section on the Language Podcast YouTube channel. And while you mull that over, let's hear David's answer to that question. Well, the, this is the question of, of ownership, really, it's, it seems to me. Once upon a time, there's no question about it, the British owned English. I mean, it was that's where it came from, unless you go way, way back, in which case you're in Europe with the early Germanic uh, dialects. <laughs> Maybe the Germanic peoples owned English, really. Anyway, yes, it was British English for a long time. And then, of course, American English came along. And that became the dominant variety around the English-speaking world and the one that still is exercising most influence insofar as different international dialects of English are changing as a result of others, then virtually everywhere you look, it's the influence of American English on them in all sorts of ways, on vocabulary, on pronunciation to some extent, on spelling definitely, and to a limited extent perhaps on on grammar. So uh, yes, the American influence is definitely there. But when you look at the statistics of English globally, when I was uh, doing the third edition of the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, I reviewed all the statistics for the countries of the world, ended up with a total of 2.3 billion people who use English in some way or another around the world. So that's, you know, 2,300 million, of which some 250 million only are in the United States. And so the interesting thing is that for every one native speaker in the world now, there are now something like five or six non-native speakers. So the concept of ownership has changed totally, dramatically. Everybody owns English now, in other words. If you have taken the trouble to learn it, and if you are in a country where it has a significant presence, either as a second language or just as a foreign language, then you have rights in it. And it's no longer the case that a historical owner, as it were, can say to you, no, you shouldn't be using the language in that way. I know that was the, uh, for a long time has been the tradition. Uh, oh dear, these people, they're not speaking English correctly. No, no, I think that's a, we're well past that stage now. And when you now look at the big population centers for English around the world and ask, are these going to influence the future of the language? I think one has to say yes in some way, mm -hmm. uh, in due course. So what are we thinking? I'm thinking India, where there are more yeah. people speaking English now than in the entire native speaking populations of the world. China cannot be very far behind. So although at the moment American English is the dominant force, for cultural reasons, you know, through films and television and all the rest of it, 
I'm not sure, but that's going to be a very long-term influence. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if in a hundred years' time, we're finding the language demonstrating significant characteristics that have come in from these second language nations that are now using the language so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to see how the, t- the sort of the tide turns with languages over the years. Certainly noticed that just in my lifetime as well, from uh, grandparents who didn't really understand Americans when they spoke, because they didn't have the same level of, I guess, exposure to those variants. Yeah. Nowadays, listening to my daughter and mixing in American English, and then even possibly other types of English as well from friends. So it is, it's, it is really, really interesting. And on the Isles, actually, as I was growing up, we were really encouraged to speak more of an RP English. We even had elocution lessons at school, and you may have had those as well, or remember people having them to speak proper English. Yeah, I it had these yeah and it was always the it was always the the language that you heard on you you would hear on TV the news in the UK you would hear this sort of typical BBC type accent and nowadays we hear a few more regional accents although fairly neutral regional accents we do hear more of those do you think that this is the way forward is this the way we're going to be going will southern rp finally take a rest from having this prestigious and privileged position in society? Yeah, I think it's uh, we're, we're definitely moving in, in that direction. The thing about RP, received pronunciation, is that it itself has changed dramatically over the past 50 years. There have been noticeable changes in the accent. It has gone, as it were, a bit down market. Uh, there are still quite a few people around who use the older form of RP, but they'll be dead soon, you know. I mean, <laughs> they'll be gone. <laughs> and the younger generation of people who are using an RP modified in the direction of many of the local accents around the country are going to be the, the, the new norm. You hear this in the royal family. RP is still around. It's still a minority accent. Something like 2% of the population of England still use RP. But, you know, 2%, come on. don't. Is it on the BBC? Yes, it's still there. But as you rightly say, uh, the BBC has diversified. Uh, This is a result of the Annan report in 19, when was it, 77, which recommended that the BBC become more diverse in its accent presence. Why? Because of commercial radio coming in with local radio stations, Radio Merseyside, Radio Leeds, and all of these coming along with the presenter speaking in a nice local regional accent and people turning to them because they found that they could identify with those people much more and leaving the national broadcaster behind. So the BBC had to do something and they did. And so these days you will hear quite a wide diversity of accents. Yes, most of them are are sort of modified in the direction of RP for intelligibility reasons, but some broadcasters still maintain a very strong local regional accent. I'm thinking of Ian McMillan on Radio 3, who presents a program called The Verb every week, and he has the most very strong uh, local Yorkshire, Huddersfield area, if I remember rightly, sort of accent. Scottish accents are very noticeable now, for example. Welsh accents with Hugh Edwards reading the news and all of this. So the institutions have begun to change. Yeah, the the idea of having more representation, I think, is, for me personally, an important thing 
because exactly as you said for identity and for people to be able, be able to identify with the people they're listening to and seeing in media we need to be represented in some way to have our voices to feel that our concerns are their concerns there was an interesting thing that happened a few years back in singapore with singlish and you mentioned singlish and singapore as one of the places where english is spoken and the interesting thing that i found was that there was an encouragement of local people in singapore to abandon singlish and use a more standard english and following that there was an immediate backlash of actually do you know what singlish is our identity where do you see this kind of conflict moving do you see this as the first steps towards a new language or do you see it as somewhere where there may be room for both and it would stick as it is well all the again it's too soon to say as far as long term goes but all the evidence so far from the last 20 30 years because I too was in Singapore and encountered precisely this kind of conflict. That was back in the late 1990s. And uh, it, it's happened in many, many other places. Now, the most successful cases are those where they've developed, as it were, a language policy, either explicitly from government or just implicitly with people just, you know, voting with their mouths, uh, as it were. The most successful cases, it seems to me, are those where People recognize that language is diverse and that it gives them extra power if they are able to switch between the different constituencies that use those varieties of the language. So, in fact, you're in a much more powerful situation in Singapore if you have both at your disposal uh, rather than if you only have one. Now, there is always a backlash going in both directions. First of all, a backlash towards the standard language that you've mentioned, and then the other direction. That, well, one has seen that in many, many countries. And then it settles down, usually. Now, why does it settle down? Because institutions recognize the realities that are out there and incorporate the differences into their being in a positive kind of way. Now, what sort of institutions? I'm not just talking about things like broadcasters. I'm talking primarily about literature. Novels, poems, plays, short stories, all of the range of literature. When you go to the English-speaking parts of the world now, which have been using English for some time, what you see is the burgeoning of a huge local literature. You see it in Singapore with the proverse competitions and things like that. You see it in India. You see it everywhere, really. The West African novel, the Caribbean poetry. And as these writers begin to use the local varieties of the language in a creative, ingenious way, so prestige comes to the variety of the language that once upon a time would have been dismissed as simply gutter talk see. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there's so much literature in Singlish now actually has raised Singlish into a status that it never used to have, but one which reduces the, the conflict. It's no longer so bad, as it were, in the eyes of many educated people in that country, as perhaps the previous generation might have felt. And I see this everywhere now, and I think it's a very, very positive sign. I mean, and I know you've mentioned that it's very difficult to predict things. So I'm going to be a little bit naughty and, <laughs> but, and ask you to make a prediction. <laughs> How do you see the future of English? 
on a world stage? I mean, do you think that it will continue to evolve into something we can predict? Or do you think even it could be replaced by another global lingua franca? Oh, absolutely. No reason why not. No, no lingua franca has lasted for more than a thousand years or so. You know, English has actually done very well. Nicholas Ostler, in his book, Empires of the World, talks about the international, the global languages of, you know, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, Latin in the last thousand years, French, of course, a few hundred years ago, all languages that were going to become international and global and all the rest of it. English is now the holder of that title for a mixture of political, technological, economic and cultural reasons. Uh, but forever? Well, as it's never happened before, and in a thousand years' time, well, who knows what might have happened? They might have landed by then. We're all going to be speaking Martian or something. <laughs> in, in other words, the future of a language depends not on itself, but on the political, economic, technological, and cultural factors that motivate it. And so your question about the future of English is actually a question about a prediction about the future of society, uh, the future mm -hmm. of the world. So one can easily imagine alternative scenarios where, for all these reasons, political and economic in particular, we have a world where, for instance, Chinese becomes the dominant language and everybody feels they have to learn Chinese, otherwise they're going to miss out. Or in another scenario, Arabic becomes the dominant language. In a third scenario, Spanish does. Spanish is actually a hugely important language in the Americas. Well, maybe that could go in a new direction. So we have all these scenarios. But the fact of the matter is that at the moment, there is no sign of any of these alternative scenarios becoming significant. Go to China, they're all learning English still. Same in South America, same in the Arabic-speaking countries. The figures are interesting. You remember I said 2.3 billion speaking yeah. English around the world now or using English in some way. When I say speaking, I mean listening, speaking, reading, or writing. Well, that's an interesting figure because when I did the second edition, well, let me give you the three figures. First edition of that encyclopedia, 1997, there were 1.5 billion. Second edition in 2003, there were 2 billion. Third edition in 2019, 2.3 billion. Now, wow. if you do the mathematics, you can see that the scale of increase between the first and second edition, which was really quite rapid, you know, half a billion in six years, has flattened only 0.3 billion in 15 years. Mm -hmm. So the number of people who are learning English around the world seems to be not as many as there used to be. Why? I don't know. May maybe there is a limit to the number of people who need an international language of that kind. Maybe technology in the form of machine translation and so on is making it less necessary to learn another language. There could be all sorts of reasons. So there is a certain flattening but still an increase. So I think we're not talking about alternative scenarios for the foreseeable future. Thank you for those. Uh, that was great insight, really, into, uh, into your thoughts. I really appreciate it. What's something that you know that always surprises people when you speak on this topic, particularly? I suppose the inevitability of language change. 
Deep down in many people's mindset is the thought that once upon a time there was a kind of pure state of English which we've left behind and maybe one day we'll get back to it if only the language would stop changing all the time. Well, of course, precisely that attitude was held by their grandparents that they're referring to. And those grandparents had exactly the same attitude about their grandparents. And so it goes on from the very beginning. Everybody thinks there was a golden age and that change is for the worse. Now, when you point out that change is inevitable, and actually without change, there couldn't have been a Shakespeare and all the rest of it, uh, (laughs) then that, I think, is what surprises people more than anything else. And what piece of information do you most enjoy sharing? Etymology, without a doubt, Mm. the historical dimension. This is the thing that fascinates people more than anything else. Where do words come from? How did people speak in the olden days? And when you start talking about the meaning of individual words, the meaning of place names, the meaning of personal names, your Christian name, your first name, your surname. And then the big change that happened to me when I, in 2004, when uh, Shakespeare's Globe asked me to reconstruct Shakespeare's original pronunciation so that they could put some plays on in the accent that Shakespeare and his colleagues must have used, that produced an absolutely fascinating fascinated response uh, to the extent that this original pronunciation or OP movement has now become a movement uh, with people all over the world putting on plays in earlier stages of and not just for Shakespeare of course but for other periods in the history of the language as well so definitely the historical perspective. What do you think is one key thing that everyone should know about what we've discussed today? Tolerance, I suppose. Tolerance and acceptance of diversity and change. And I believe that that recommendation for language ties in perfectly with the overall way in which society seems to be moving at the moment, with a a genuine recognition that societies are diverse, that one should respect the different elements in society. We're talking now about, you know, racism and and, and sexism and all the other things that are out there in the social world. There is a linguistic parallel to all of this. Mm. And I think that that notion of tolerance is one that has motivated a great deal of interest in, in language, in these new varieties of language, in the study of language. There's a huge amount of research into this these days. And dialects and accents and languages that previously might have been dismissed for some reason or other are now being given really serious attention. So I think I I recognize that growing spirit of tolerance and certainly applaud it. What a beautiful way to wrap up this episode. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, David. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a delight. Thanks for the opportunity, Richard, and good luck with the next. And I sincerely hope this series is helping to build on David's message of tolerance. Thanks for listening to The Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. Remember to let me know what you think in the comments for this episode on The Language Podcast YouTube channel, which, if any, version of English will become dominant in the future. If you enjoyed listening to David, then he has loads of books to choose from, over a hundred. So take your pick. To bring a little Shakespearean delight into each day, be sure to check out his latest, 
everyday Shakespeare lines for life. These simple lines encapsulate the wondrous complexity of life and the enduring appeal of the bard, perhaps the world's most famous speaker of English. This is the last conversation in our Evolution of English series. Let us know which conversation you've enjoyed the most and which topics you'd like to hear more about. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a like and hit that subscribe button. In a few months, we'll be returning with a brand new series of the Language Podcast. But until then, share the podcast with your family and friends or head back to episode one and give it all another listen. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.